Hello everyone and welcome back to the Film Score Podcast. I know it's been a little while since you've heard my voice and frankly it feels a bit strange being back behind the mic. But here I am for one more one-off episode. I think the next season, season 3, is coming soon-ish. Pre-production's gonna be starting any day as I figure out the initial lineup of interviews. We'll see what's in store. But today I'm going to be covering some of the best and my favorite and most notable film scores released in April, May, and June of 2022. And yeah, I know it's mid-August. Normally I have these out a lot sooner, but cut me a little slack. So first I'm going to talk about two multiverse scores. The first is Everything Everywhere All at Once by Sunlux. And... First off, this is a hard score to listen to, because it's long. I think it's almost two hours, and frontman Ryan Lott actually told me that, despite that runtime, it doesn't even feature every cue. I don't know how much might have been left on the cutting room floor, but it's wild to imagine just that much music in here. And it takes a little while to get going, because for quite a while it feels like there's a lot of disparate elements and ideas, and... It doesn't seem to coalesce, but eventually it does. And it's in that last maybe 20, 30 minutes of the score, which, frankly, is longer than some scores alone. Everything comes together, and that's where the score release really earns its length. All of that music that you've been through suddenly makes sense. Those steps you've taken along the way all take you to this final destination. And in his actions, there's like a brilliant ending. It's something that other multiverse scores don't quite get. They don't pull everything together, or maybe they don't even try to touch everywhere from the get-go. The second one is Danny Elfman's Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. This is a score that, on first listen, I just thought was fine. It was a good score, but felt like it was missing something. It was only when I came and dove into it a little more that I began to appreciate and notice all the little nuances. It does allow Elfman to explore some of his weirder elements, the the eccentricities that we know him by, and the track like A Cup of Tea, which has been surprisingly popular, that's more truly droning and experimental. And there's also kind of overt touches of horror in the gothic undertones, and in the occasional use of voice. Something that you wouldn't expect from a superhero film. And I know that a lot of people will call this a horror film wrapped up in a superhero movie, and maybe there is some legitimacy to that. But the music certainly makes that case. Frankly, I'm, I'm glad that Elfman and Raimi have finally had a chance to reconnect. I think it's been several years, and obviously they've had many good years in the past. Another high-profile score that kind of went under the radar this time was James Newton Howard's score for The Third Fantastic Beasts, The Secrets of Dumbledore. And it's really odd that you can have a Harry Potter film come out and almost disappear immediately. This was a fine score. It's certainly not going to be one that people think of when they think of the best Howard scores, nor the best Harry Potter scores. The highlights really are these 
recurring themes that we've been hearing for 15, 20 years at this point, and they're done really well. For those really pining for orchestral film music, something like The Secrets of Dumbledore will hold you over, although maybe not be your favorite of the year. Certainly takes a backseat to some of James Newton Howard's works from the prior year. He had some really good stuff in 2021. Another one that oddly went under the radar, at least in my view, was Daniel Pemberton's score for The Bad Guys. I really like basically everything that Pemberton does, and he seems to have such a wide stylistic range that he's capable of. The Bad Guys is just super, super fun, really jazzy, energetic, light. One that even I'm guilty of not listening to enough. The score that really surprised me was Hans Zimmer's score for The Survivor. This is the film about a Jewish boxer, Harry Haft, and it's a true story, at least to some extent, who used boxing to survive in Auschwitz. Obviously, I, I didn't expect it to be a film that would be a stylized action film or over the top. I, I expected this to be something quite intimate, somber, emotional, and that's really not what we've come to expect from Hans Zimmer in recent years. His, his most famous scores the last decade, 20 years, have all been really big-budget blockbusters, big scope, a lot of action, and so I wondered how this was going to work. And yeah, I was skeptical, but I'm glad that Zimmer showed that that skepticism was unnecessary or unfounded, because this is really minimal and intimate. It does bring out all the emotions. It shows you how somber and harrowing that experience would be, and has a constant melancholy. Zimmer also does a good job of incorporating some Jewish musical and religious aspects that I think are highlighted in the track Avinu Melkainu, and I apologize in advance for butchering that, which heavily features this liturgical voice and is quite chilling. It's really quite a beautiful piece and a beautiful score overall. Another beautiful piece in... Quite a different way is John Lund's score for Downton Abbey, A New Era, and I'll be up front. I really don't know anything about this, the TV series, nor the prior film, so I can't tell you whether there's existing thematical material used, how much it continues the musical identity of the prior works, but what I can say is it's just an absolutely gorgeous score, really serene, really beautiful. I mentioned a few minutes ago, for those looking for more traditional orchestral film scores, you could, you could listen to Fantastic Beasts. You can, but I'd really recommend listening to Downton Abbey, A New Era. Maybe it's not as leitmotif heavy as some of you'd want, but you're going to be hard-pressed to find something that came out this year that's more beautiful. I've got two a bit darker, despairing scores. The first is We're All Going to the World's Fair by Alex G. Alex G is someone that I didn't realize is actually just a huge indie musician. And I really, really love seeing people that have so much success in one genre, in solo work, going and dipping their toes into film music. Because they're bringing all these outside experiences and skills into this sphere, and you know that they're going to keep at least some of that identity and bring it into this music, and you're probably going to get a score that 
unless you're listening to a lot of other music, you're probably not going to have heard. And even if you have heard something like it, you probably haven't heard it in film music. And that's exactly what this score is like. It takes a lot of singer-songwriter aspects, which you do hear on occasion. I mean, heck, you can go back to The Graduate 50-plus years ago, and that's littered with Simon and Garfunkel's singer-songwriter identity. But what really makes Alex G's score striking is how lo-fi it is, how eerie and haunting it is. I don't know if it features his vocals as well, but there's this ghostly, childlike singing throughout a lot of the songs, a lot of the cues, and it's really unsettling. One thing that I love about really any music is when it makes you feel something. And let me tell you, I get chills every time I listen to this. I'd highly recommend, if you don't want to dig through the whole thing, even though it's maybe 30 minutes, 40 minutes, listen to the beginning and end tracks. They are really, really good. Another grimy, dirty score was Robin Carolyn and Sebastian Gainsborough's score for The Northman. And I was a little let down when I learned that Mark Corvin wasn't going to be returning to score this Robert Eggers film. As most of you can remember or know, Corvin scored Eggers' prior two films, The Witch and the Lighthouse, both fantastic films, fantastic scores. And I knew that this was the case when I talked to Mark back in October or November, I think. But I thought, oh, maybe it's a touchy subject, maybe it's too personal. I know that perhaps there is a requirement for a, a quote, music journalist. Um, I don't know if I'd call myself that, but somebody like that to push a little bit and find out more. And I didn't. So I don't know the reasoning behind it. Maybe no one does. Maybe only Eggers and Corvin do. That said, Carolyn and Gainsborough do a fantastic job in this film. I think it takes place in the 8th century, in a few different areas in Northern Europe. And I think we often expect period medieval films to have a bit of majesty to them. But this is a film where we're talking about a man trying to avenge his father and take back his kingdom. You'd think that that would be big scope music, bombastic, really orchestral. But this duo don't do that. They do create a sense of majesty, but it's, it's a grimy, dirty, ugly majesty, fitting for the first scene in the film when we see Amleth, the main character, when he's a boy, in his father's kingdom, and... It's just a nasty place. It reminds me a bit of, like, a sonic rendition of the Strugatsky Brothers' famous book, Hard to Be a God, where this is a hellish world, and one that lets you appreciate how far society has come, given how horrible life seemed back then. But there's still a majesty to it, and it lets you fall into Amleth's shoes and know and appreciate this destiny that has been brought upon him. I think they've done it a lot with period-specific instruments, or at least faux-period instruments that let you believe this is music from 1300 years ago. But then they also pull out some more fantastic elements. There's a fight in the climax of the film that has this, like, chorus of the gods going through it, and it adds something mythological and, and superhuman and unreal as well. 
And I don't know to what extent either of uh, Carolyn or Gainsborough have done solo score work before, but it does have me looking forward to more of what they might do. Perhaps the most surprising score of the year for me, though, has been Carl Frid's score for Pleasure. Frid had actually worked quite a bit with his brother, I think, doing a lot of duo scores. This might be the first one that he's done on his own. So this is a film about the porn industry. So the name is obviously quite fitting, seriously or ironically. And Frid kind of embraces it. There are elements of EDM and of really raunchy hardcore rap, but there's also more operatic elements and choral music. And so you'll have these tracks with Latin names that have really infectious electronic music playing, and maybe someone will be rapping with very hard R lyrics, and then it'll transition into almost opera singing or faux religious ritualism. Even saying it out loud, I'm thinking, this doesn't make any sense. There's no way that these disparate genres can work together. And yet it does. It creates a almost sacredness to the sexuality. And it's a fascinating listen, one that I've had on repeat many, many times. Another one that I've enjoyed was Firestarter by Cody Carpenter, John Carpenter, and Daniel Davies. This is one of those scores that is certainly going to outlive the film, given the film came out just three months ago, I think. It's probably already done that. It's one of those movies that is probably going to be lost to time almost, forgotten that it even came out. And this score isn't going to go down as the best from John Carpenter or from this trio, but it's still pretty good. There's actually a surprising amount of ambience and drone, especially in the first maybe half or two-thirds. It's quite dark and sets up quite an atmosphere. And then, right near the end, the last few tracks, the signature groovy synth melodies come in with some blaring, harsh guitar that serves to be a very cool climax. Another score that has certainly outlived the life of its film is Men by Jeff Barrow and Ben Salisbury. I genuinely love this duo. I don't know how many scores they've done, maybe half a dozen, and even dating back to their scrapped score for Dread, released under the name of Drock, I believe, D-R-O-K-K. It's maybe eight years ago, ten years ago. These two have just been cranking out really good, often unconventional or experimental scores, and Men is no different. If you're a regular listener, especially if you've been listening over the last few months, you will hear me often talk about how much I love the use of voice and how I think it's an underutilized aspect of a lot of film scoring. So maybe Barrow and Salisbury have been listening because Men is full of voice. It's really haunting vocalizations mixed with some drones and pastoral undertones that create a horror lying in what we'd otherwise think of as a bit of a pristine countryside, like there's spirits waiting to haunt us just beneath the ground. It's just brilliant stuff. And two high-profile films. One is Brian Tyler's score for Chippendale Rescue Rangers. Unfortunately, Brian and I were actually going to talk about this score a couple months ago, but it fell through as things just happen sometimes. Um, hopefully I'll be able to have him on the show 
but this was a surprisingly fun score. You can really hear some, and I hate to pigeonhole it like this, but some superhero-esque elements to it, particularly the main theme, which is very heroic. Probably helps that Tyler had spent so much time scoring superhero films in prior years. But there's also a really big mix of genre. You've got some rocking aspects, some really smooth swinging jazz in the track, chip off the old block, and then in the track, Missing Monty, you've got a bit of a darker, jazzier, film noir feel. And I can't remember if this is on the soundtrack release itself or just in the film, but near the end of the film, there's this, like, fan convention where we see all sorts of various, very recognizable film properties. And basically, every time we see one, there's a 5-10 second excerpt of an interpretation of the, the music we know. So I don't know to what extent that's music from those properties, or if Brian Tyler had the chance to just have fun recreating all of these. But either way, it's a lot of fun, and it shows just how much room Tyler had to go wild, genre and style-wise. Another big, big film, one of the biggest of the year, and apparently at this point one of the biggest of all time, was Top Gun Maverick, with music by Hans Zimmer, Harold Faltermeyer, Lady Gaga, and Lauren Belf, and not to mention a number of other people who helped work on it. Huge, huge all-star musical cast. And I know a lot of people quite like this score. You know, it really didn't do a ton for me. I think, perhaps, how much I liked the original film's music. So to me, the best aspects are homages to the original. Otherwise, I thought that perhaps it's a little too similar to what we expect from Zimmer, especially his later years, and it dips into melodrama a little bit. But that's just me. Obviously, I have my own particularly very idiosyncratic tastes, and I know a lot of others really did enjoy it, so if you haven't heard it yet, highly recommend it. I think that the track The Man, The Legend, slash Touchdown, in particular, does a great job of showcasing the original music here. Another one that I didn't extremely enjoy, but that I know some did, is Bubble by Hiroyuki Sawano. I will say it has a great, gorgeous main theme, although it's used a ton throughout the score, and maybe that overuse is what soured me to it a bit. But I would definitely recommend giving at least one or two tracks a listen, particularly to hear that theme. I think another aspect of it may be just my own unfamiliarity with the music of anime films, animated Japanese films, and, well, just less of an exposure to the music that can accompany them. Unfortunately, failing on, on my part, but what I'm hoping to correct. Michael Giacchino actually finished this period, this three-month period, really strong, scoring both Lightyear and Jurassic World Dominion. Now, Dominion is an interesting score because, in one sense, I felt like there was something missing there. It's a really long score, and it's solid, but it felt a little flimsy. It felt that there was a punch that it was lacking. On the flip side, however, and maybe it takes someone both with a very careful ear and a deep knowledge of these prior themes, but it uses an absurd amount of themes, not just from prior films, but dating back even 
20 plus, 25 plus years ago to the music that Giacchino did on one of the Jurassic Park side-scrolling games. I think he takes like a raptor theme from there and sneaks it into this film. So that aspect I really respect, appreciate, and am quite wowed by. Lightyear, however, was one that I really, really enjoyed. It's an extremely fun action-adventure score, one that I expected to really be a bit more futuristic and electronic, but it is very restrained in that. You do get some spacier sci-fi vibes, but not to the extent that I think most composers would go. It is a little light on them, opting for, again, more of a more modern orchestral approach that's strengthened by a really strange vocal performance for Zerg, the main villain that we've known for, gosh, 25, almost 30 years in the Toy Story universe. Oh, and then of course, Giacchino has one more score out for this year, but in July, Thor Love and Thunder, which, unfortunately, at this rate, I'll probably get to in three or four months. One score that has repeatedly grown on me, and continues to grow on me since I first watched the film, was Phil Tippett's Mad God, with a score by Dan Wool. When I first watched the film, I almost didn't even notice the music. Uh, my fixation was so strongly on the visuals of the film, of this about 85-90 minute awing stop motion. It's one of the most visually interesting films I can recall ever seeing, so you can probably forgive me for not noticing the music as much. Then when you listen to it, it brings to life this just horrible nightmare world to which we're an observer. It's like we're on a, a guided protected tour of the depravities coming from Phil Tippett's mind, and it's just really brilliant, but also further showcases this this harsh, harsh reality that I think is made even more striking with its juxtaposition from a, a sometimes quite tender, delicate main theme in how it's orchestrated. Now, I had actually thought that the score release was significantly different from the music in the film, simply because the score release is about 80 minutes, almost the entirety of the film's length. But Dan will actually let me know that the film is almost wall-to-wall -wall music, but there's such a tight balance with the music and the sound design that quite often you don't even know the music's there, or it's working so tightly with the sound design that they become one. Definitely a dark horse for my favorite scores of the year so far. I realize at this point I've been rambling for quite a while, so I'll give you a quick list of a few others that I, I wish I had time to talk to, but I don't want to bore you too much. Howard Shore's back with Crimes of the Future, another grimy score that tunes into an ugly, dirty future. A Windfall by Danny Bensey and Sondra Urians really, really surprised me, because normally those two create these harsh, noisy soundscapes, but here... You know, there's a similarity to Cliff Martinez's Kimmy in that it's creating a modern channeling of a Bernard Herrmann-esque thriller. Brilliant, brilliant music and quite a good film as well. Another is Disaster Pieces score for Marcel the Shell with Shoes On. Not really someone you'd be expecting to score a, a truly lovely, silly, whimsical piece, but really one of the most daring scores he could have done because it's so, so against what he's known for. 
I mean, how the heck do you go from It Follows to this? I don't know, but I'm glad, I'm so glad that he has that breadth. Finally, Mark Corvin's score for The Black Phone. So while he didn't win out on The Northman, he did have another very good score come out. And this might not be my favorite from him, but I think it shows a lot more depth and variety in what he can do. There is that sort of noisiness we expect from him. There's a lot more electronics, which kind of come from, or an extension from his work on Resident Evil at the end of last year, and some slower, almost melodramatic, emotional points, which I don't think we've really heard from him before. And unfortunately, there's actually quite a few others that I wish I'd have covered. Frankly, I've got a whole list in front of me that I've been skimming through, and I've probably left off a half dozen. And shoot, there's probably that many or more that I've just totally forgotten about. But as you can see, great year so far. It's a great three-month period. Quite a few of these I've done reviews on or have reviews coming up on. So keep your eyes out for those as well. And of course, keep your eyes and ears open for season three. It'll be coming eventually. Maybe six weeks. Maybe sooner, maybe longer. I don't know. I've got to keep that anticipation and unknown in the air.